0: Hello, I'm Professor Alex Bovey, Dean and Deputy Director of the Courtauld Institute of Art. I'm really excited to be bringing you the second episode in our new podcast series, Cast. The Courtauld is the UK's smallest specialist university dedicated to teaching and research in art history, conservation and curating. And it's also an art gallery with a remarkable collection of paintings, sculptures and some of the world's most important works of art. In this episode, I'll be shining a light on the work of our incredible conservation department here at the Courtauld, and in particular focusing on the restoration of Sandro Botticelli's breathtaking Trinity Altarpiece.
1: You feel a bit like you're travelling back in time and you get to see a painting whilst it's being made, almost. This huge
0: painting is thought to have been made for a Florentine convent for repentant prostitutes. Botticelli created this masterpiece at the end of the 15th century, and hundreds of years later, our conservators are still shedding new light on how the painting was made, as well as revealing new details within it.
2: I don't think you ever quite realise how vivid the colours will be.
3: It rewards sustained and constant and repeated looking, it really does.
0: Thanks to their conservation work, this painting will be enjoyed for many more years to come. You're probably familiar with the name Sandro Botticelli and probably even more familiar with some of his iconic images Take the birth of Venus, for example with the gloriously naked Venus being delivered to shore in a clamshell It's got to be one of the most famous paintings of all time Botticelli was a celebrated artist in his own day, almost half a millennia ago, but in the centuries following his death, his name fell almost into obscurity. In the 19th century, a group of artists known as the Pre-Raphaelites rediscovered his work and propelled it back into Art History's Hall of Fame. Botticelli's most famous paintings depict serene mythological scenes. They're archetypal Renaissance images. But in 1494, when a monk by the name of Savonarola took over the city of Florence where Botticelli lived, his paintings became much more sombre and religious. The Trinity altarpiece was painted on the cusp of this change, which is perhaps what makes it such a powerful image. Before I talk to my first guest, let me take you into this painting. It's a really imposing picture that is made to be seen from a distance in a church. And so when you come into the gallery and stand in front of it, it really towers over you, dominated by the central figure of Christ on the cross. Behind his head is the dove representing the Holy Spirit, and holding up the cross is God the Father. So there you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that give the painting its thematic name, the Trinity Altarpiece. On either side of Christ, there are two very large figures. On the right is John the Baptist, Christ's cousin, And he's also the patron saint of the city of Florence, where the picture was made and in which it lived for most of its life. And on the left is Mary Magdalene, an associate of Christ and generally regarded as the kind of iconic penitent. I met up with my colleague Scott Nethersall, an expert in Italian Renaissance art, to understand more. So, the picture that we're talking about is one that I think has greatly occupied you, and it's one of the star objects in the gallery, because it's an unbelievably complicated picture. It's a
3: complex painting, and it's also one that is quite awkward. It's not necessarily an image that you immediately warm to. This vision of the Trinity floats or is planted, depending on how you want to see it, in this very ambiguous space.
0: The scene is set in this rocky, barren landscape, and the way Botticelli has used scale here is really interesting.
3: Awkward disjunctions of scale and of space is what makes it such an arresting image, but at the same stage what uh, makes it quite an awkward image when you first see it.
0: The scalar shifts are really fascinating to watch viewers in the gallery trying to navigate as well, because it's an enormous, imposing altarpiece painted for... A pretty substantial church, wasn't it?
3: We're almost certain we know the church that it comes from. But the church that it was, uh, that we're almost certain it it came from, is a single space with a beamed ceiling. You walk in under the nun's choir. And it seems to have been on the back wall, in fact, of the chapel. So you you can imagine a single church without aisles and then a a main altar chapel that comes off it at the far end with an altar on the back wall of that. And it seems to have covered that sitting underneath an, an arched window.
0: This altarpiece must have made such an impact as you entered that huge holy space, reverberant with songs of worship. I imagine it must have been quite a moving spiritual experience for those nuns to worship beneath Botticelli's painting, their eyes turned to gaze upon the Holy Trinity by Mary Magdalene herself.
3: Who is holding up her hands in a gesture of prayer, guiding you towards a kind of meditative engagement.
0: I know you've thought a lot about what the Magdalene is doing here, Mary Magdalene, and I wonder if you can explain a little more about who she is, what her relationship is to Christ, and why the nuns might have wanted her in their picture.
3: These nuns are particularly interesting. The church we think it came from was St. Elizabeth de la Convertite, St. Elizabeth of the Converts, so named because many of the nuns seem to have been formerly prostitutes who repented of their sins and took the veil. The Magdalene, although she's not described as a prostitute in the Bible, she's described as a peccatrice, as a sinner, by this point in the 15th century is generally understood to have been a prostitute. That's what her sins are, who repents of her sins, goes into the wilderness, and so therefore provides a really powerful model for this community of women. It's obviously that why she's the figure who provides this kind of model for how you should contemplate mm. the Trinity. The,
0: the nuns called upon the services of really one of the greatest artists of 15th century Italy. <laughs> well, so
3: we, we technically don't know who called upon Botticelli. The nuns, from what we do know from the documentary record, are extremely poor. They at times seem to be starving, Uh, and what actually makes this painting so very, very interesting is that it's one of the few records from Renaissance Italy of the visual culture of the impoverished, the visual culture of the excluded and marginalised. So much of Renaissance painting is made for courts or made for uh, wealthy patrons, or it is very, very rare to get a window into the visual culture of the marginalised, as these women seem to have been.
0: So this painting offers us rare insight into the spiritual lives of women who live right on the margins of Renaissance Florentine culture. And it makes me wonder, how did one of Italy's most celebrated painters come to paint such an elaborate masterpiece for a group of impoverished women?
3: So it's unlikely that they would, in their own right, have had the money to commission something like this. It seems likely that some External patron, some external body in some way is involved in actually commissioning Botticelli.
0: One can really only speculate about who determined the imagery on yeah, the yes. panel. Yeah,
3: yeah, exa- except it seems so relevant
0: to the women. Absolutely, yeah. This painting always takes our visitors by surprise with its imposing scale and intriguing subject matter. But the painting hanging in the gallery today is quite different than the one that arrived many years ago. And that's thanks to our chief conservator, Graham Barraclough. When the Courtauld Gallery was closed for renovation back in 2020, Graham took the opportunity to restore this extraordinary painting. Not only did he return the colours to how they probably looked 500 years ago, but he discovered some surprising new details too. So, Graham, can you say a little about the condition that it was in until recently? There
2: were many problems with the picture and the closure of the gallery really allowed the opportunity and time to really focus on the the full conservation. One of the issues with it was it had a very yellowed varnish, so it was obscuring a lot of the colours and details within the picture. A lot of the painting was quite damaged and covered in layers of brown. So you lost a sense of sharpness.
0: I mean, Christ's body was a very, I think, quite acid green because of the varnish that had covered it. What's it like to start to uncover the 15th century surface from underneath the accrued varnish layers from subsequent centuries?
2: It is quite remarkable. You know that the sky will be blue beneath the yellow, but I don't think you ever quite realise, and in this case particularly, how vivid the colours will be underneath.
0: It makes me think about how those paints were made all those years ago. Probably by Botticelli, or more likely his studio assistant's grinding up precious pigments into oil. It's really astonishing to see these colours return to their former glory. Graham and his team have completely transformed this work of art, and today it dazzles just as it might have done the day that it was completed. I mean, it is breathtakingly different. Yes. The, the experience of the picture is astonishingly different, and it's partly... The work that you've done, and it's also the way that it's lit, the position that it's in in the room, the frame that it's in, and maybe we can come back to the frame. But I mean, just to imagine what it's like to start to uncover the palette. And Scott, did you visit frequently as this was being done?
3: I did, often often enough to annoy them, I suspect. It was a revelation seeing how particularly the blue of the sky emerged underneath it, how God regained a knee, how these different textures of... Hair emerged across the uh, painting, how Christ's body changed in colour.
0: Before Graham's conservation work, I'd always thought of this painting as a little dark and maybe even a little gloomy. God the Father is depicted behind the crucifix, and I'd always thought of him as peering out of this darkness. But with the old varnish layers removed and the true colours of the picture shining through, you can see that it's anything but a kind of bleak picture or a gloomy picture. Graham's work on this painting really wasn't just about colour.
2: Matching the colour is the first and most obvious. But then in some of the damages, where there's a large loss, particularly the bottom section, I was always constantly worried about because there's a lot of damage along a very bottom section. And actually the former frame covered a lot of that, so about up to five centimetres of the actual image was covered by the frame rebate.
0: Presumably, some of those damages are because they're the closest to the altar where the action of the mass is happening and, you know, wax damage. yeah.
2: Yeah. So, at one point, we thought we could see, you know, a kind of a burn mark from, say, a wax candle or something like that. But I suspect that at some point in its life, this picture sat in water Because you've got a lot of damage along almost the entire of the box.
0: So not just like a clumsy cleaner or an altar altar boy dropping something. More
2: like a sort of flood. I mean, whether that was in storage or whether that...
0: Florence has been (laughs) known to flood from time to time. Floods, centuries, candles. Restoring this painting was never going to be easy, And as Graham discovered, others before him had tried and failed.
2: One of the major problems were the splits that had formed in the panel that were quite crudely repaired, probably at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, around that time. So the first part was removing all the old repairs, crude repairs, that were battens that were screwed in, butterflies inset into the panel, none of which were really treating the actual inherent problems.
0: Bringing this painting back to life was a major undertaking and there was one more challenge to face. The altarpiece is huge, so big that it was impossible for Graham to work on it in any of our own studios here at the Courtauld. Luckily, the gallery secured a grant that allowed Graham to work on it in a much bigger studio and to recruit a few more conservators for the project too.
2: So I was fortunate enough to be able to use the National Gallery conservation studios and also the grant paid for two very prominent panel conservators, one from the Prado and one formerly of the Met, that did the structural work that was necessary on the back of the the work.
0: I always imagine that the studios at the National Gallery is feeling like the wings of a substantial West End theatre, you know? Like, they're very spacious.
2: They're very spacious. Big enough
0: to move a picture like this, and presumably it had to lay face down for a period of time while you were doing the work.
2: It was face down for a period when the structural work was going on. I generally worked on it upright.
0: When it came to their own repair job, Graham and his team wanted to do things properly they sourced the same materials that Botticelli would have been working with 500 years ago. The original altarpiece is constructed from panels made of poplar, a tall, thin tree that still grows in abundance around Florence. But they couldn't just use any old poplar wood. It had to be poplar wood harvested from around the same time that Botticelli was painting.
2: Yep, 15th century poplar.
0: So, with unbelievable care and precision... Graham's international team of expert conservators inset strips of 500-year-old poplar wood into the weak areas of the panel, joining the splits back together. An amazing achievement. You know, there's
2: not many people with the confidence and skill and ability to really work with these Italian panels.
0: Yeah, it's a real feat of engineering, isn't it? It, it? is not it Yeah, yeah. Are you imagining that your intervention will secure the painting for another 100 years 200 years do you have a kind of horizon like that in mind not
2: especially but you would hope at the 100 years end of that spectrum hopefully before it needs any substantial treatment
0: at the court we often make fun of ourselves and frankly we're made fun of by others for being exceedingly interested in the backs of pictures This is often where art historians and conservators find clues to how a painting was made and also how we garner insights into what happened to it after it was made, who owned it and where it travelled. And in the case of Botticelli's altarpiece, looking at the back of the picture led to a rather amazing discovery. With the help of an infrared camera, Scott and Graham were able to spot something that hadn't been seen or noticed for perhaps hundreds of years – hidden beneath layers of wax on the reverse of the painting were sketches seemingly made by Botticelli himself when
2: we took a section of battening that was sort of crudely reinforcing at that point the wax didn't cover so this little worn rectangular section where you can see a part of a column as you would if the rest of the back hadn't been covered with wax that subsequently discolored During the course of treatment, we were able to confirm that these sketches on the back are actually original. They largely depict sort of columns that would form part of a framework along with a sketch possibly of the crucifixion.
0: So these drawings seem to be rather spontaneous marks on the back and by studying them, we're able to get some insights into how Botticelli might have worked in his studio.
3: So what we can say now is that they predate any, or some of them at least, predate any of the painting on the front. That means that these drawings were done before any thought was given to the front, really. They in a different orientation to the panel. So in, in terms of one's kind of historical fiction, this is just a convenient surface that you can doodle on, I think.
0: I can imagine Botticelli standing in front of this huge wooden panel, and he's about to undertake a hugely ambitious project. But first, he wants to work a few things out. So he makes little sketches on the back, and he's working out the scale and the composition and how he thinks it's going to be framed and just playing around with a few ideas.
3: I mean, some of the more worked-out drawings that are for architectural elements are presumably working out something, and one of the fantasies is that it might be for a frame or the like. But others, one's about tracing around someone's hand, other crosses, there's some kind of inscription that we can't make out. I think there's just a convenient surface on the side of the room that you yeah, can yeah, that yeah. you can write on and draw on. And it's and that's not that unusual. I mean, you do see that sure. quite often in the 15th century. Yeah. That it's just, I mean, paper's not that common. You use the, whatever you can write on.
0: This discovery shows that no matter how old or well-known a work of art might be, there's always something new that we can learn about it. And in this case, it was the application of technology, and more specifically, infrared imaging, that was able to shed light on the artwork and the artist. This use of technology to understand and restore a painting is something that's fascinated artists and conservators alike. Last year... The Courtauld commissioned sound artist Julie Rose Bauer to interview one of our own conservators about her work with infrared imaging, as well as recording the sound of that process. Here's a snippet from that interview.
1: My name is Claire Richardson, and I'm a lecturer in conservation of easel paintings at the Courtauld. I'm teaching conservation students all the different techniques that we use in the conservation of paintings. One of my areas of expertise is infrared imaging. This is a Cyrus camera and it's an infrared camera and it just looks in the infrared region at paintings. So we're illuminating it with lights that infrared components so they have a slightly heating component. It allows us to look underneath the paint layers and see the drawing and to see any artist changes that were made in the painting process. it makes the paint layers well some of the paint layers become transparent in infrared so what we can see is if the artist decided to draw out the composition we'll see the drawing that they did first um, sometimes when a top paint layer becomes transparent a different paint layer might be visible so we can see changes that happen in the painting process you know the earliest stages of painting or if the artist decided to move the position of a hand or an arm something like that we would see it So it has a sensor chip in the back of the camera and in order to get a high-resolution image, the chip moves around inside the camera and takes lots of different, smaller photos and then it stitches those images together. um, So it makes a composite, high-resolution image. Well, it has scanned lots of famous paintings, but amongst them is the Botticelli painting, The Trinity. The exciting thing about that painting was that there's loads of beautiful drawing. So first of all we saw the beautiful drawing and then we saw that there were elements that were drawn that were never painted. I think it's always surprising actually what you find with infrared because it's a completely different image of the painting and It's showing you this different stage, and so you feel a bit like you're travelling back in time and you get to see, you know, a painting whilst it's being made almost, rather than when it's been finished. Yeah, it's really exciting because I'm always watching the overall view because I want to see that the capture is complete and it's really tempting to want to zoom in, but I never do, because if you do, the camera sometimes gets upset (laughs) and it slows down, so you have to be really patient and not try and fiddle with a zooming in or out or anything like that, just wait for it to complete it. I want to press my nose up against the screen, really, and um, see what's being revealed. That's, you have to wait to the end.
0: idea of patient, close looking is key to pretty much all of the work we do here at the Courtauld. And I'm not just talking about the work that goes on behind the scenes. We also encourage visitors to the gallery to take their time with the artworks on display. In an age where we're so used to engaging with images quickly and at a surface level, swiping and scrolling, it's a wonderful and I think nourishing thing to be able to just stop and look deeply. And that's why we've put a bench in front of Botticelli's altarpiece. We wanted to invite visitors to pause, to look up and marvel at all the weird and wonderful and inspiring details. One of the things I never get tired of in this painting is a wonderful little detail. This tiny figure in the foreground, tiny relative to Christ and Mary Magdalene and John the Baptist. He's holding in his hand a fish and a string has been run through it so that it looks a little bit like he's carrying a handbag made out of some very fleshy-lipped fish, like a carp or something. It always gives me joy when I see him walking along with his fish purse. I wanted to ask Scott Nethersall about how he felt about the painting, having spent so much time with it.
3: It really grows on you. I mean, the awkwardness is always there, but the awkwardness becomes more interesting. It, it's a painting that, as you would expect from something that these nuns are going to look at every single day and they're going to uh, say their prayers in front of and they're going to hear Mass in front of, that it rewards sustained and constant and repeated looking. It really does. And it's designed for that and it, it does that.
0: Thank you to all my contributors today. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Courtauld Cast. Next time, we'll be featuring a project led by Turner Prize-winning artist and Courtauld alumni, Jeremy Deller, who asked young people to reinterpret one of the most celebrated paintings in our collection, Manet's A Bar at the Folies bergere I hope you can join me then. Courtoldcast Cast is produced by Novel for the Courtold Institute of Art and generously supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies. With thanks to our producers, Harry Cook and Claire Crofton, executive producer, Joe Wheeler, and a special thanks to Julie Rose Bauer. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and follow us on socials at Courtold on Instagram and at The Courtold on Twitter.